Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stockmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. My guests today are Rod Sugden and Dr. Jane Riddiford of Global Generation in London. And while I was editing our conversation, I kept thinking to myself, yes, please, can we have more of what these people are doing? Dr. Jane Riddiford, founder of Global Generation, is a specialist in organizational change with a background in horticulture. Rod Sugden is an elementary school teacher who spent years in India. The universe story inspires their work in a busy urban center. We talk about how the universe story connects people to their environment, to their cosmos, and to each other in London's busiest building zone with construction workers, Muslim immigrant kids, families, office workers, and flourishing gardens growing in dumpsters, which British people call skips. How do modern, objective people find their own sense of being indigenous? Well, for starters, we are all Staranese. Why don't we start out by you just describing what Global Generation does and what your work has evolved to include, if that's not too huge a question. No, I think I can do it in a nutshell. Um, Our work right from the get-go has always had these very two intertwined or interdependent strands. One of them is about creating the conditions for young people to fulfill their potential so they can become Mm -hmm. catalysts for positive social and environmental change. And the other is about providing... um, opportunities for people of all ages to connect with the natural world. And I have to say, when we first kind of established the organisation, it was out of Mm -hmm. taking young people to where we have a campsite in the countryside. So I didn't realise that actually some of the most potent part of our work would evolve in the middle of the city and, in fact, in the middle of intense urban construction sites and on top of office buildings. Um, We still Mm -hmm. do run the camps in the countryside, but, uh, you know, fairly early on we were like, well, most of the young people we work with, some of them might have never left the city before or they may not regularly have that opportunity And what does this experience Mm -hmm. of connection look like in the middle of London? And I'm increasingly fascinated and interested by that. Whilst I think the rural deep ecology experience is highly important as a, you know, kind of a doorway into a deeper sense of self that's not separate from the wider whole, I think there is something and to understand and real work to do about Mm -hmm. how could our cities be truly creative places where we have so many people 
with different worldviews all living together. And we keep bees, but one of the reasons we keep bees is just because they're, again, a metaphor for a living organism that is not of separate parts. 50,000 bees in a beehive are all just a beehive. And young people get that, you know. You know, we really, from my sense of our work, it's mm-hmm. around drawing out the life beneath the concrete and also connecting that with, you know, parts of, uh, you could say, our inner mycelium, our interior or inner experience of all of this and not seeing that as separate and all of our impulses from the rhythms and patterns of nature. So that's why we bring in a lot of different creative practices and artful ways of knowing and sitting still in silence and Rod, you know, can we talk more about all of this to really, um, and really draw as much as the practical things we do, we provide experiences to kind of identify and name and give voice to those often hidden dimensions of ourselves and make the connection. What would be an example that of that, connecting one's own personal rhythms to what's happening in nature? Well, um, do you want to jump in or shall I answer? Okay. 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 Um, uh, an example would be really doing a lot of work with mm-hmm. our participants around thinking about values, even what are they. And maybe, for example, we might get them to go out into the garden and find an object that speaks to them of a value that they feel is really important and a quality that's really important. And then they would bring that back and they would share and talk about themselves in the context of looking at the qualities of a leaf or a rock or, you know, thinking about maybe when we teach them the the larger big history deep time story of the universe we might get them to think about the different phases within all of that and actually start to identify values so of course in the supernova you have sacrifice or the sun you have tremendous generosity but they'll come up with their own things there, um, I know, I, I often share this example, one of our young people actually chose to think about that long, long period mm-hmm. of time where it looked like nothing was happening, not too much was happening, you know, after um, the Milky Way galaxy and before the supernova. And she thought about that long, long period of time mm. and she came up actually with the quality of commitment, that life was committed to hang in there for the long haul. And then she, then we got her to write about herself and write about herself in relationship to that long period of time. And she wrote, I always thought that I wasn't a committed person, but now I know that it took that long, or not even that period, it took all the 14 billion years to make me. I know that Mm -hmm. um, commitment is boiling in my blood. It's commitment that made me, and I am part of the universe, and my Mm -hmm. job is to, you know, kind of create the future. 
but she she yeah she had a different rootedness a groundedness and rod i'm sure you've got a few examples of where young people have um found values and meaning that hold meaning for them but they've been able to articulate it in a different way by situating it in these broader wider movement rhythms and patterns of our shared cosmic story or cosmic history if you like i'd rather say because obviously mm -hmm. there's multiple stories that have interpreted it but i think we can say broadly there's a shared cosmic history do you want to share a couple of examples of well, yeah, I, th I think the example that comes to my mind is um, where I was teaching um, about the universe story to my class of seven and eight-year-olds. And then uh, uh, at the end of the session, one of the boys in my class said, does that mean we're all star and east? And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, if you're from China, you're Chinese. If you're from Japan, you're Japanese. Since we're all from the stars, mm. that must mean we're all star and east. And I said, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And then another boy in my class said, does that mean we're all connected? And I said, yes, it does. So I think one of the, the powerful things about uh, the universe story is that it can really get, uh, give children mm -hmm. a sense of that we all have a common origin and that we are all connected. And, and they seem, in my experience, children, I think the universe story it really gives children, and particularly young children, they seem to get the universe story on a level, not just with their minds, mm -hmm. but kind of pre-intellectual mind, almost on a visceral level. They seem to, in my experience, appreciate, wow, we're all made of stardust, we're all connected. Um, you know, we all have a, co a, a common origin. And I think it's really important to, uh, to give children this message, particularly when they're young. Well, yeah, and just to kind of tie it into the thread we were exploring, you know, you were talking about an example of finding values or qualities in nature. So there you see in Rod's story about Star Anise, you know, that speaking of the value of relationship and profound core relatedness. We also, along right. with the practical gardening, we would do sitting still. And we just call it sitting still because mm -hmm. we work with kids of different um, cultures and religions. Then, yeah, just to say that, fill that out a little bit. That we we found that in England anyway, that um, a lot of educators and head teachers right. and other teachers would have a problem with the word meditation because mm -hmm. of its connotations with uh, religion. So we called it sitting still, and found that nobody has a problem. With sitting still in England, you know, like, um, who would complain about getting your kids to you sit know, still? You know, saw a message uh, from one of your students. So, this this is one of the things that struck me in looking at your work. It was a girl named Muslima or Muslima, who was twelve years old, and who said, "When I sit still." I discover that nothing can change the stillness of your body. No matter how much sound is around you, you are still remaining still. And that to me, for a young woman who's living in an inner city and who's approaching adolescence, what an incredible capability that is to recognize that at that age and to be able to carry that through your life, it's, it's so important. 
So I think that weighs into that silence and stillness is a really foundational linchpin of our work, which is often delivered in one of the most noisiest parts of London. But just this whole thing of, you know, whether you're sitting still and you experience the shared quality between us, or which, you know, connects science to indigenous peoples, because, you know, of everything coming out of nothing. And the whole sense in the garden, we often talk about, sure, the garden's abundant and full of life, but um, actually there's the most important part of the garden is the invisible part that you can't see, the mycelium beneath the soil. And so that kind of invisible dimension of life, we try to really foreground that And so I think, you know, thinking about the times we're in, I did listen to the Trump. We both of us watched the Trump inauguration talk. And the one that really worried me most was his call for nationalism. And I just like, and that's what this whole work with, I think there's a real potential in this work of going beyond nationalism. And I think we have to. So it's another huge subject, but... Yeah, and just going back to the uh, the value of uh, sitting still. I mean, we, we use it a lot in Global Generation, mm-hmm. and I've used it a lot um, with my kids in school. And I know in America you have the whole movement of mindfulness. I think the great thing about um, sitting still is that we can, uh, we can experience a, a depth in ourselves through sitting still that is often not available to us. Um, doing other kind of activities and and you know there's the sense of if if children learn to you know to sit still and be quiet like that quote that you came up with Maria that there's a depth that uh, that she was entering into there which is very tangible in what she wrote so and I think that if you have if if you if you allow children to get some grounding in in this uh, in sitting still then when they come across the universe story, it, it, uh, it impacts them in a much deeper way than, other, than would otherwise be. And, yeah, again, it enables them to make this <clears throat> connection between their own experience and the wider cosmic story because, you know, they get a sense that, wow, for them to be creative, you know, because then we mm-hmm. might do sitting still and then they might do a creative writing activity, but they do it from a free place. And they do it, they can, you know, it's, you've seen some of the writing, it's, and you did some yourself. It's beautiful what, you know, something happens, it, it's like emergent, it's spontaneous. And then they see, wow, that's how this kind of awesome, you know, stars and galaxies and all the rest of it, trees and fish and frogs, came through these sort of, right. to some degree, unexpected leaps of connection. And... I think there's that that whole thing of kind of something coming from nothing. Exactly, and, which which is part of the story, isn't it? It's, yeah, exactly. it's implicit to to the universe story that mm-hmm. this is what the scientists are telling us that it all came out of nothing. It all came out that tiny little speck uh, that appeared at the beginning of time and then inflated, you know, as the great flaring forth or the big bang. That all came out of nothing, and that what is that nothingness? It's that place. Yes. It's where there's no time, um, there's no space, there's just this nothingness. But it's that 
-hmm. we can also access that or experience that in sitting still so it's this experience of sitting still for uh, for young people it's in a sense it's implicit in the universe story itself you know whilst we're an urban agriculture project in the middle of london where we you know grow organic vegetables and we involve kids in harvesting them and cooking them that is only half the story and i think that's what marks us out as a bit of a different project and that for us the garden is a kind of 3d metaphorical landscape of something coming from nothing and creativity and it's a way of kind of externally seeing yes. that potential that lies inside all of us. Potential if we can of that, start from that, that stillness that place and of silence. Emptiness. Stillness yes. and silence yeah. and as the ground for it's creativity. Like infinite potential, right? I mean, if you think of the whole universe and every all the countless billions of galaxies everything came out of out, out of nothing so the potential of that nothingness is is really unlimited and you know i think the power of where we're situated and where we work because this could sound like oh yeah really great that's a very you know almost esoteric academic kind of conversation or big concepts to bring to young people but we make it very very hands-on and experiential and then we do involve them in um you know mm -hmm. having a sense of that in a way we bring the macro to the micro and we bring the philosophical to the practical so you know kind of experiencing the creativity of the milky <laughs> way in the middle of a concrete construction site where we've got you know carrots and cucumbers and is that what a skip bursting is? out because of these rubbish dumpsters. it's a dumpster it's because I saw yeah, the dumpster. pictures of them, but I wasn't it's sure. A dumpster. Yeah. <laughs> it's a dumpster. It's a dumpster. Yeah, some people think a skip garden <laughs> is where lots of children skip, <laughs> do lots of skipping. But no, it's a dumpster. It's a dumpster. I like think when I was in school, it would have uh, been where I went to skip class, but. <laughs> Which... <laughs> and then just sit around with vegetables right. no, and skip. flowers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then to say about the um, the free fall writing, I think um, one of the things I found in my class is that I want I was very inspired by Jennifer Morgan's books, and uh, I brought those into the classroom. And this, in a way, is where this all started from. Actually, our universe story worked together. That I was inspired by Brian Swim very much, and uh, and then Jennifer brought these. I was thinking, well, how can I bring this perspective that Brian Swim is. Um, is uh you know outlaying here and and uh, then jennifer's books came along so i started using these books in the classroom and the children loved them and um, right. i was very inspired by the yeah. way that she was writing in first person mm. as a universe and then i thought well what about if the children started doing the same thing and wrote in first person wouldn't that be amazing wouldn't wouldn't that somehow connect them to the universe story in a way where there was no separation between themselves and the story itself. So we started to get them to, to write about themselves as a universe in first person, which is very powerful. But what, um, what I found in the classroom is that children are so constrained by things like they've got to get their spelling right, you know, they've got to get the 
grammar right, you know, they've got to um, get the punctuation right, right and all the rest of it, that we, we decided to do away with all of that and, and say to them, look, don't worry about your grammar, punctuation and spelling and all the rest of it. Just write free flow. Let the creativity, let, let the ideas just flow through you without the need to Especially since you have a lot of children who are from families that may not speak English at home, right? So that adds different pressures, yeah. Yes. There's that yeah. as well, yeah. And so then we found that they, the children would produce this wonderful writing, uh, very creative, very, uh, very deep writing and also yeah incredibly deep in the sense of there was this sense of no separation coming through in their writing where mm -hmm. it was almost as if the universe was you could say speaking through them in a certain kind of a way but one of the clues mm -hmm. on that again is to keep it personal to either not necessarily write in the first person but write about something you know, that's got meaning for you in terms of this values dimension again, I say. Um, I think it's, yeah, yeah. And I think there's a historical kind of um, yes. rift that we're addressing here, which, um, you know, for two or three hundred years, we made nature and the wider cosmos inanimate. And so in our own way it's almost trying to kick start or thread back our ability to actually recognize the life that is in you know what is nature and always interesting cosmos. to me is when people refer to say other animals as it and you'll see in a news story for example a cow got mm. loose from a dairy farm or something it was later found. Well, we know she's a cow. <laughs> By definition, she's female <laughs> if she's if she's lactating. And and I try not to use it because to me, you know, people say, That's Well, cool. I don't know if it's a he or she. Yeah, but if you say he or she, you've got a 50% chance of being right. If you use it, you're gonna be wrong all the time. <laughs> because that's not how it works and, and oh, that I was something that. actually that. that was introduced to yeah. me um i went to genesis farm in jersey and that was one of the exercises we had to do yeah. was to refer to other people as it for a certain period of time and you realize this this incredible divide that well, we have between I us. That. I mean, if, if you called another person it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's brilliant. I love that one. I, I would like to discuss how the two of you got interested in this. Well, I think to say that we we both have um, mm -hmm. we both have uh, a background in Eastern religion, and uh, we both started doing uh, Buddhist meditation, vipassana meditation, probably mm -hmm. what about twenty six, uh, twenty eight years ago or more. And before that, you know, I had a I had a guru in India, a devotional path, 
who, where we also meditated as well. And so I've had a daily practice of meditation for 35, 40 years or so, <laughs> probably about 40 years. And <laughs> thank you. And so a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, meditation um, background and Jane also has a, a long-standing meditation background as well and well just speaking for myself I I, um, I wasn't into guy or the, the into ecology at all I wanted to sit on my meditation cushion and disappear into bliss and samadhi until I got to the point where I thought well actually I want to find some expression of this inner depth that um, is opening up or I've experienced and, f and find some manifestation for it or do something in the world. And around this time, I was uh, looking at Brian Swim's uh, video series, Canticle to the Cosmos, and was very, very inspired by those lectures. And then came along Jennifer Morgan's book. So I think um, Brian Swim and Jennifer Morgan, were they were giving me in what they were saying some kind of way of learning to express what I'd uh, discovered in meditation mm. in the world. So that was really my, I think, my journey into all of this. And I had a, yeah, kind of a different journey. Right. Uh, gosh, I grew up in New Zealand and from a fifth generation farming family. And New Zealand is kind of... Uh, well, <laughs> nobody like is America, maybe not as extreme, but it's, you know, but you know, it's a land yeah. built on, it's a nation built on fault lines of the past. They tried to do colonialism a little better by the time they got to New Zealand, Use, citing the, Amer the American example, because it was 200 years later, it was the 1800s, not the Maori 1600s. People. No, no, and they did try for more of an integrated settlement, and you know it's not wasn't perfect, but you know globally, New Zealand I think is one of the better examples. But still, it's a process of bringing all this together, and there still were many fault lines that I grew up on in terms of just as a child, you know, we're brought up supposedly to love nature, but that's when you go for a picnic or you know a hike or whatever, but you know, I lived on a farm that was where the swamp, swamp trees had been cut down, these forest giants, and agriculture, farming had happened for sheep. And somewhere, I don't know, as a child, I just would feel the, these times when I'd feel this immense grief, and I didn't understand it. And then at other times, I would also deliberately try and find the pockets of un, unfarmed land. And I would deliberately try and get myself lost. And there I would feel the sense of, or I'd go into, I spent a lot of time going into what we call the bush, but it's the forest, you know. As a kid, I had that kind of freedom and I used to love it. And I just used to let go and I had the sense of, connection and a kind of spiritual impulse so it was which was speaking to something which wasn't the narrative I was growing up with and what I was meant to do so that's why I left New Zealand in a way to I always used to feel like it was an unsung drum if that makes sense you know the kind of a drumbeat inside myself that I wasn't allowed to sing and I 
I left New Zealand because I was following that. And it was, you know, I used to feel like, oh, I wish it would go away because mm -hmm. it meant I didn't feel like I fitted into mainstream society. And it took many years for me to make sense of all of this. But then I did, that was why I got on a meditation path and started doing retreats and all of that. And at the same time, I was developing, uh, you know, in my late 20s, I, well, before that I did community arts. And then in my late 20s, I studied horticulture and sustainable land management and got involved in establishing an inner city forest in New Zealand and, you know, and really there, that's where I really learned that growing a forest provided the metaphors mm. and ways of being for growing a community. And we did grow a community through growing that forest. So I was really much more mm -hmm. rooted in the ecological dimension of life than the, than the sort of interest in the cosmic dimension of life. And then... I had this kind of private meditation spiritual practice that I didn't really talk about in my work, but I knew it was animating it, but I never really spoke about it or the fact that I meditated. <laughs> I thought people would think I was weird. So there were these kind of strands going along. And then I also, in the early 2000s, I guess, I, Brian Swim came to London and um, I got... I saw how, and I got interested in the whole evolutionary spirituality, and I saw how the whole thing could come together in that work. And I was, and ecology and cosmology, and that we're all part of nature. So I got very interested in that. And then I think, kind of not that long after that, I guess, Rod and I, although we've known each other for many, many years through doing retreats, hmm. we only got together as a couple sometime after that and I think actually what's happened there's been a kind of fusing of Rod's real you know he'd gone a lot further in contemplating the whole cosmic story than I had and his interested in in the stars and my interest in the mm -hmm. soil and we kind of met in the place in between in a sense and then it was in 2012 and you've probably seen that oh you was on the film why Teach the Universe Story to Children, which was filmed, made out of the um, this summer camp that we ran in 2012. And we had an opportunity to do a summer school. And at that point, Rod wasn't doing anything with Global Generation. And Rod was, was teaching you know, elementary school. And, and set it up. Mm -hmm. But we were Yes, that's right. But we were together as a couple. And I was, and then I suddenly said, well, Rod, could you come and run the summer school for us? And I said to the secondary school, uh, very mainstream secondary school, who were funding it, could we make it a big bang summer school, which at the time felt like a big risk to me. <laughs> and they said, yes, <laughs> we could. And so we had this opportunity. And so then we really, that's where we came together in our work with children. But what was so amazing was something extraordinary happened in the skip garden during that week um you know we had young people we had construction workers we had scientists we had people from the guardian we had art students and we had children and 
there was a shared context that was created that was just more magical, for lack of a better word, and alive, very, very creative. And we were like, wow, what, that, that's extraordinary. And my colleagues at that time, who weren't necessarily involved, they knew something had happened. And um, so, you know, it's been an ongoing journey since then, how to enable others to make this meaningful. But that was how our work came together, how it came into our practice with young people and how we brought in the, um, the cosmic dimension into global generations work of bringing nature to children and young people in the city. Uh, yeah, and I think just to say, um, with my experience of, of, uh, of the universe story, uh, Maria, was that having done a lot of practice and, and in this uh, meditation practice, having quite a lot of experience of what could be called the ground of being or that place before anything happened, um, I, had, I had experience of that and um, nothing was really joining up, although I was teaching at that point. I wasn't really teaching in an inspiring way or bringing, bringing that dimension into my teaching work at all. And what I found with uh, when the universe mm -hmm. story came along, it was suddenly like a mi missing piece of a jigsaw where just in and of myself, I started to feel united and uh, connected in terms of the totality of who I was. Suddenly my, my own scientific logical mind, which is very much part of who we are today, suddenly became integrated in the rest of my being and, and connected with the spiritual sense, sensibility which I had. So it was really, um, it was a really fantastic uh, thing to, to, for me to discover. And That's so interesting how it fulfilled needs not only of your scientific logical mind but that it was it was fulfilling deep spiritual potentials that you already had that you were already developing and then this brought in you know learning about the universe story it kind of embodies it yeah i i, I think so because because i mean to to my mind there's two dimensions of of life there's this, you could right. say there's the unmanifest and the manifest, or there's that place of timelessness and there's being in time. And I feel that the, the, mm -hmm. the universe story, it brings these two different worlds together, which, which is part of life. Mm -hmm. I mean, life has got these two different aspects to it, these two different dimensions. And I think that's, for me, the beauty of the universe story in, in uniting these two two dimensions and so that we as human beings can also act well, in since the world you're talking in, about in positive and creative different ways. ways of realizing the entry points to this story and and also how you embody it how do you use ritual in that mm. that's okay <laughs> i haven't got a finite answer to it i feel we're in the midst of we're in the midst of finding out, and uh, at the moment, I'm feeling like it's simple things that we do that open a space of reverence, respect, and depth. Now, that might be at the beginning of a session, or as we begin freefall writing, or as we begin finding something in the garden to actually begin in silence 
And that's almost like a ritual that opens up a different space between the group. So that's one aspect of ritual. Another very practical thing is like in Skip Garden, as often as we can, we involve, uh, you know, the harvesting, Mm. the cooking and the sharing of food, the breaking of bread. So our young people are involved in that and when all our staff and volunteers, we have a cooked lunch every day where we sit down together and eat. And to me, that's a ritual that has just for us, the way I'm thinking about ritual at the moment, one is to curate and open a deliberate space of depth. And the other is rituals that mm-hmm. cultivate a, a sense of community and a sense of connection. So you could say depth and connection. And I think it's not about us picking up rituals that other peoples have done, but bringing, doing things with a sense of ceremony and reverence. So even the writing, you know, special bits of paper are given out. <laughs> I can't even, I couldn't even do it off a lined bit of paper off a block. So this, I think there is also something about a repetition and you're creating, you could say a groove in consciousness with the most unlikely, with the things that are around us. Um, you know, we've got a, a, a few rituals that Jane mentioned, but I think that we'd love to discover and use some more, wouldn't we? I mean, I've done, I've done a lot of Qigong and, and Tai Chi and, um, and I'm trying to come mm-hmm. up a, a series of tai, sort of Tai Chi movements that would kind of correspond to the universe story. Because, I mean, we do, both of us, we grapple yeah. with, what is myth? What is ritual? And I, I find those questions really potent to think those are the questions of our time. And But I wrote down, uh, one, you know, we we discussed the what's the purpose of it. You know, we've discussed that in terms of kind of, mm-hmm depth and connection but what is it I wrote down deliberate repetition with reverence and respect you know this might sound a bit of a um, a contradiction to what we've just just said is that we try and keep it fresh as well so that we're not getting stuck in any particular you know rituals can be very you know negative as well in the sense of of people talk about oh rituals that's ritualistic in the sense of it's become dead you know so I think that this is where you know being spontaneous in the moment helps and and being aware of that empty space in oneself helps as well because it's from from that place that we can uh, make all this fresh and new. I mean, we don't want the universe <laughs> story to be boring. <laughs> I No, but I, I'm so glad you touched on that, the whole thing of, um, because I'd just drawn that picture just then on my paper. Like, uh, that I think the important thing is, the most important thing is not the ritual, it's actually the empty space for something new to emerge, something creative and fresh. So it's this kind of ongoing balance and dance and tension between familiar enough but not dead and, you know, over-familiar. So we use this expression sometimes, mm. you've got to hold it. Are you the ones from whom I heard this, this image of the bird's nest using the bird's nest? You want to talk a little bit about yes. that? Yeah, I yeah, and I introduced that in the context of uh, how do we enable young people to connect themselves and their own rhythms and patterns of nature mm-hmm. to the rhythms and patterns of nature. 
you know, early on in this discussion. And one of the ways that we do that is through consciously in our workshops, ensuring that we are bringing in opportunities for them to experience these three dimensions of life, which we call mm -hmm. I, we, and the planet. But you could think about that as self, community, and then the very practical, physical things you do. And when those three dimensions come in, you could say the inner, the outer, and the collective, this other magical, unnameable essence of aliveness begins to flow, um, which is you can't pin down, and that comes out of that empty space. And I discovered, and this is where the kind of scientific story of you know, everything, all of life and the cosmos coming from nothing, it actually correlates very strongly with indigenous story. And I'm from New Zealand and I came across this traditional Māori story, which was given to the tallest tree in the forest before human beings would walk the face of the earth. And it, was an, it came yes. in the form of yes. three baskets of knowledge. And it was given to the tallest tree of the, in the forest by uh, Io, who actually, in the way it's told in uh, the Māori story, is a she. Io is a she. She is the god of gods from the groundless ground who comes from the place, abides in te kore kore, which is the place of emptiness place of pure potential from which all of life will come. So Eo is the parentless God, the source, you could say. And um, so this knowledge comes in the three baskets. And the first basket is knowledge of oneself as one truly is. And the second basket is knowledge of everything you can see around you and us and touch and appreciation of everything that's gone into making all of that. And the third basket is knowledge of the interconnectedness upon which the universe is built. And the knowledge comes in baskets because weaving is a sacred thing to do, the weaving of the seen and the unseen. But the most important place mm. is the middle of the basket. And then we kind of, I sort of, added this bit to the story. Why, why, why is the middle place? Oh, the middle of, of the basket, because again, it's this empty space out of which new life can come and new possibilities can arise. And say about like the bird's nest. Yeah, yeah. So in sharing the story, because one of the things I've kind of understood is that, you know, myths and legends can change and these ideas can be told in different ways. And, um, according to the context and it is sometimes because we work in a multicultural context and as I say we work with children and young people and we work with construction guys and business people it hasn't always yeah just it felt much more appropriate to ground it in uh, realities that you know they didn't come from New Zealand they went up for, for wanting to talk about necessarily the gods in the sky or whatever they so I connected it to nature and then I connected it to the whole idea of um, actually that it was a bird that revealed the knowledge and 
you know, as a young boy, saw the knowledge in the eyes of the bird. And then I introduced it, the whole notion of the emptiness in the middle of the basket. I thought of the metaphor of a bird's nest. And just the fact also, again, down to this point of diversity, that, you know, a bird's nest is flexible and strong because it's woven together of all sorts of different materials that are gathered. So there's a lot in that, you know, the way a bird's nest is created, what it is. But actually that flexible and strong container is protecting mm -hmm. this empty space in the middle of the nest where birds right. lay their eggs and it's that empty space out of which new life can grow. Yeah. And um, just to, the other thing to say, sometimes when we do that, it, tell that story, there's a way of pointing to the emptiness of the nest and then going, and we can find the middle of the nest inside mm. ourselves if we're very still and very silent. And... It's been a very accessible way into um, sitting still. And that's in the traditional Māori story, is that te kore kore and Io, the god of gods, the you god know. of the pure potential out of all, which all things come, actually is the deepest part that's inside ourselves, but the deepest experience we can have of ourselves. So... You know, it's one of the things I love about marrying, the, idea of the bird's like, nest the is the that outcome. they are so strong. You know, you see in a storm, trees blowing mm. and everything, and the nest is still there. Yeah, sometimes they fall down, but I mean, just in general, they are built with such strength. Mm. With an animal's beak, it's just. <laughs> It's just amazing to me. Like I say to people, you know, when they think humans are <laughs> so superior, really? Can you build your house with your face? I don't think so. I don't think so. It's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> build your house with your face. I love that. I'm On Saturday mornings, we run something called Space and Nature Club in the Skip Garden. Well, there's a few different aspects of that that are interesting which we can touch on but the one bit that I'm really curious about is the way children seem to have no problem moving between you know actual kind of mythic legends and stories particularly Native American stories or traditional Maori stories and the scientific story they just synthesize it they don't have some things, uh, maybe what we know rationally and literally and other things work on us in a different way. And I used to sometimes feel a bit, did I have to explain the transition between the two? And we don't. We just sometimes pepper those sessions with or, you know, embed in those sessions the latest Hubble videos with a Native American story, with... Um, hands-on work in the garden and they transition all of that. And do, do they do that with their and religious backgrounds it. as well? And, and not Yeah, yeah, we do. We do. But we've had to be creative about that. Um, so we work with a lot of young Muslims and say, for example, the 
bit in the um, big time story that they get most upset about is the primates because there's a whole okay. thing that humans didn't come from monkeys that we were clay that was fashioned by god in the form of humans but and we became humans uh-huh. so we've really focused on the clay part of that story and the shared history with the earth and then they don't there's not such a problem you know the fact that we have a shared history with the earth and then it is possible to make those leaps going isn't it amazing that early people right. intuited that clay was important but they didn't have microscopes and telescopes at that time and one time during one of our summer schools when we were doing this exploration the mars rover was actually um you know, looking to see if there was clay on Mars, because that would have been an indication that perhaps there was some form of life there. So I think there's something around, um, you know, curating what we emphasize. And lately, to be honest, I don't even really mind if they don't buy the whole of the science story. It doesn't bother me. I just think it's about... Can we even have a relationship, a meaningful relationship to the sun and the stars? Because I think that's another thing, that we've lost the ability for the cosmos to hold meaning. And Teyada Shadar writes about that, you know, because what science is revealing now is so huge, it dwarfs us. So there's something around just refinding our cosmic address. You know, I mean, it's a bigger topic, but arguably we did, yeah, we did have a cosmic address that we could relate to when we thought we were the middle of the cosmos. You know, we thought that everything revolved around us. That was a clear picture that we had. But now it's impossible almost to have a clear picture of the universe. So then we just don't deal with it. We just blank. So I think all these different ways of bringing in, and again, I refer to that phrase, artful knowing, or if you're going to think about it philosophically, an extended epistemology um, is really vital, opening up lots of different ways of knowing and experiencing so that we can kind of become aware of bits that are just dimensions that are just not captured by statistics and the rational mind. So do you want to describe where it is you work and what the context is in which you're doing this? Yeah, yeah. We work right in the middle of London is a place called King's Cross, which has a very rich history. Apparently, Boudicca was there, Mary Wollstonecraft, Florence Nightingale, Charles Dickens. It was really culturally a very rich area, and it was also, well, one of the epicenters of the Industrial Revolution and that it's where all, all the goods came. So there's a canal system, there's two railway stations, and it had all of that. Um, And then things changed, and 
it fell into disrepute and it was, you know, because of the railway stations, it was an area of drugs and prostitution and intense poverty. It wasn't really a rich area, but it was, it, it, and actually Charles Dickens wrote there, so it was an area of poverty all along, but it had a vibrant history. And then it went into this really poor area. But then there was, because it was the railways, there was an area of um, 67 acres, which is 67 football fields, that no one really mm -hmm. knew existed. You know, it was railway lands. And then it got taken over by a developer, <laughs> which, you know, horrendous, normally one would think, developer. But I got to know the developers and was kind of curious about what was happening there. And we had an opportunity mm -hmm. to, we lived just up the road from it, we had an opportunity to be, open a garden when it was the very, very beginning of the construction. No one else was there, just us and the construction guys, and no one lived in this area. And then the young people, or the, we worked with children and young people who were going to the schools who surrounded that area and lived around the area of this new part of London that was opening up which again suddenly turned into a fantastic metaphor because it wasn't just the cranes and the people in their office mm. creating a new part of London. These kids were the first ones allowed into the, this out-of-bounds area and mm -hmm. to begin to build a culture there, and they got that. And I was a, suddenly it became a very potent metaphor for sustainability because you'd say to them, you know, what does this area represent? And they would say the future. So that was really powerful to be involved at the very, very, very beginning of making a new part of London. And, you know, since then, now there's a university there, Google is there, Eurostar headquarters are there, <laughs> I think even YouTube have their office there. And, you know, some of it, and there's housing blocks, which is social housing and really ridiculously expensive housing. And there's a school for the deaf and a normal school and all the things that make a community. The developer is probably on the better end right. of developers. You know, they're more sane, but it's still money driven. And we've, but they've kind of liked having us there along with the Googles of this world. And our garden has moved around, so that's why it's in dumpsters, but it's now got a lot more, it's a lot more sophisticated now than it was. And every time we've had to move, it's been an excuse to bring together different parts of the community, including the construction guys. The last garden was built by a lot of architecture students and working together with children and our volunteers and it actually has won a few kind of architectural awards oh, and it's nice. a pretty cool space but it, people have their weddings there now and it's part of our income strategy we sometimes um which is yeah well you know we do the work is actually a real blend of ecology education and enterprise and our young people also have their own little businesses they make jams and sell them to Eurostar and, you know, and kids with disabilities work in our cafe. And again, just in terms of the way the universe story is a diverse mm. story and it brings all these things together, we've done that in our work. 
we've you know we haven't had a special special needs project we've just had one or two young people with learning difficulties tucked in under the arm of chef in our professional cafe that's open five days a week so we've tried to embody all of these kind of yeah i think this dimension of relationship and diversity that one sees in ecology and cosmology what does that look like in the middle of an organization working in the middle of a, you know what was a construction site and now is a new development and how can in the middle of what is increasingly concrete and glass and steel buildings how can we still bring out that sense of raw nature beneath the concrete and that sense of adventure into the middle of that something which right. it can at well, times be incredibly manicured and mechanical yeah when you walk around king's cross you know yeah you walk around um some of these restaurants and places and they have their kind of bit for nature you know they have a few kind of plants outside of their um you know restaurant or there's a lawn there put put down by the developers mm -hmm. but it's all kind of like very dry and sterile and uh, but you, you go along to the skip garden it's something kind of wild and unkept but very um very organic and alive and i think these kind of developers they don't kind of quite get it you know because they make some sort of rooftop right, garden which is kind of dead and no one wants to go there but then they go along to the skip garden and it's suddenly alive and it and it's something organic about the whole thing but they like it they do like it and they and <clears throat> you know we also we're the only place uh, yeah the i saw some across that allowed we have open fires <laughs> we run them in uh you know in a washing machine barrel and no one's ever stopped us. And they come and have their kind of corporate business events in our skip garden. And they love the fact. And now they've actually offered us a permanent site there. And then one guy who was the head of development, the development, he's now opening up a new development on another part of London, which is all oh. around where there was a massive print works where they oh yes i'm familiar a pretty with horrible newspaper called the daily mail which is probably <laughs> our mm -hmm. worst newspaper world well, <laughs> one of the worst uh, one of the worst and it was the <laughs> docklands where they brought all the timbers and the goods into london it's on the edge of the thames but um they've taken on 46 mm -hmm. acres and because i've he's the guy that really gave us a chance at the very beginning on this development so he's asked uh He's now paying us to, I'm working down there as well, but even before they've got planning permission to open up a kind of creative narrative and enable people to work together. So the aspiration is that in all the public spaces there, um, there'll be something of the spirit of the way we've worked in the skip garden. So the spaces will be created but with and by the community maintained by young people they'll be edible biodiverse and now we're also looking at you know threading in the universe story so there can be you know cosmic metaphors a different like medieval gardens had a metaphor connection to the whole so you know kind of in the early stages of that and we've taken on a space in the big uh in the ground floor of what was this big print works and we're not creating a skip garden. We're actually, we're creating in there, we're calling it a paper garden. So we're creating lots of structures and everything and 
We've got mm. a few architects working with us made of cardboard and paper. And there's some lovely examples around the mm -hmm. world of fantastic architecture with cardboard. And um, so we're creating a paper garden as the beginning, the pathway for the local community to really be involved in co-creating what will be the permanent public realm. Um, so I'm that's uh, I'm kind of involved in catalyzing that and lighting new fires in another part of London and seeing if the way we work actually works. And and just to say to um, Jane's credit, <laughs> if I'm allowed to say that she she does have a gift to bring very diverse people together. And so, like, you, like, like she said, you know, she has this thing called lunch and learning where she have mm -hmm. construction workers mm -hmm. working together with school kids, for example. And, you know, the, so many different people come to the Skip Garden from, from you know, managers, um, you know, to CEOs, to, um, you know, who goes there, solicitors, refugees. lawyers, refugees. It's kids a real, have been in prison. It's a real melting pot of... Of, of different parts of society and they all sit when they come into the skip garden I think they're all you know they they kind of um, come together in something which is very positive very diverse but there's a sense of collaboration there and, and I think that this is kind of mirrors one aspect of the universe story in that this you know the collaboration that goes on in, in, in different ways in different parts of the story and I, and I think the the Skip Garden is an example of very diverse, um, you know, the very diverse mm -hmm. and different ranges of people come, coming together and collaborating in something which I think has a very positive and forward movement. And this relates to your question to Maria, what are the tools people could take away from all of this? Because obviously us beginning to do this work in this new part of London, I'm kind of mm, thinking, right. well... Because people, how do we do it? You know, when people say to me, how did you make the skip garden happen? And I've been going, I don't know. We want the whole thing to be created by everybody, you know, as much as possible. The basic structures we need to be built um, through a workshop process. But we are straight away, you know, we know we need a space for making. We know we need the possibility of growing. Mm -hmm. um, sure. By ma uh, making, I mean, you know, sort of carpentry and design. We need a space for growing. We need a space for cooking and eating together. And we need a space, a reflective space. And it's we have an architect who works with us. He actually loves to build, so he works one day a week for us, kind of doing carpentry as well. And he hardly says anything, you know, but he's a lovely guy. But he's been working with us for about a year and a half. And uh, it was him who said, you know, we look at this big what was an industrial printing press area, factory kind of thing. And he was the one who said, well, you know, we've got to create a reflective space in the middle. I'm thinking kind of out of card and cardboard and paper tubes. It could be kind of like a Japanese temple. And I was thinking we could have a different floor so people have to take their shoes off and they 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 kind of find a different rhythm when they go inside. And I, I was chuffed that it came from him. Because he just because he's been working in the skip garden, he hasn't actively taken part in our all of uh, you know. He wouldn't come and do sitting still with us, but he knows it goes on, and he wanted to create it. And 
So there's something around us creating the possibility for what I would say uh, all, you could say actually what went into traditionally building a community, but what is it like for us in our times? <laughs> so maybe we are creating our own kind of church. <laughs> ways that people can refer to the work you've done and replicate it or adapt it to their own situations? Or are you smiling? <laughs> Jay, you're smiling. <laughs> is that on your to-do list? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, uh, it's, we thought about this a lot and, uh, we're not yeah. interested in franchising and rolling out and sharing a set of tools because I think for this work to be meaningful, people have to, um, make it their own. But I do think there are principles in the work, you know, particularly this I, we and the planet particularly the artful ways of knowing, particularly... And then things like sitting still, free-fall writing. Yeah, well, that's... A, yeah, exactly. Value, work with values. So there are kind of... There are some principle um, yeah. kind of things that we, we do do, but we haven't kind of made it into a package. And all. then I think the other thing around Lucy in one way or another, integrating you know, our kind of contribution mm -hmm. to the future. I call it standing in three levels of history. So um, our contribution to the future, understanding our cultural histories and understanding our shared history with the earth and the wider cosmos. So there are these broad principles. And like Rod said, then the different kind of methodologies or approaches or activities to bring these principles to life. But in terms of um, sharing and disseminating the work, well, mm -hmm. we're kind of, we possibly are going to set up a master's program that um, people could do who are working on, you know, urban regeneration projects that in some form or another that um, where we're sharing these, yeah, they have an opportunity to go deeply into this work mm -hmm. and then they and can what about take the it out and develop it in their own ways. the children you work with, you know, are the mycelium uh, reaching out into their families, do you think? I definitely feel that. I, I know that children that I've been teaching in school, they definitely let their parents know that they're very inspired by, by the universe story and, and learning about the cosmos. And they pass it on to their, yeah, onto their parents and the parents get interested and they want to feed that um, interest in their children. For me, where it, um, mm. it breaks down is that I only have them for a year. And I think that there needs to be more of, you know, more of a sense of continuity than just having them for a year. So um, one of the good things I think about Space and Nature Club that we've got is hopefully that will go on year, year on, year out. And so that the children who are coming and learning about the cosmos, they can have that uh, year after year. Because I think just to have it for a year and not to be followed up with after that, it, it doesn't really gain that much momentum. You know, if they're really inspired by it at the time, then it kind of remains a seed in them, but it doesn't actually blossom. To, you have to keep practicing this work to make it alive or it just becomes dead. And I think that's why, you know, in terms of the sharing of it, it's been quite hard to think about because it's right. not just about, oh, this is what you do and it's meaningful. I think people have to find their own ways to practice it, including 
the whole kind of thing. What is, mm -hmm. well, how could they find their own way into silence and stillness? Otherwise, it'll be a set of external tools. Uh, yeah, I think it's got to be uh, whoever is conveying or teaching or um, sharing this universe story work. I think it's got to be alive within them for you know the children or young people or whoever it is to to um, to be touched by it. If if you just get somebody who's not that much inspired by the universe story or doesn't have that much of a grounding in it or you know a set of tools or a certain kind of curriculum or whatever and they pass it on to the children, I really don't think that that is going to have much of a powerful effect uh, on the children. Because we've done work with <clears throat> teacher trainees, not mm -hmm. for a year or so, but you know, in the at a teacher training college, and but it was kind of one-off opportunities. It wasn't enough. And I think they probably felt even a bit overwhelmed of how do I bring this in. And it is a bit, you know, there's a kind of cultural obstacle you have to go through as well. So you have to be <laughs> deeply, it has to come out of your pores in a sense. But I just wanted to refer back to the families. Many of the young people who come to Global Generation, I mean, space and nature on a Saturday morning is a bit of an exception because we have committed parents who bring their children and it, you know, they're probably from a, mm -hmm. a different demographic than many of the young people who come to us who perhaps are culturally used to living with a bit of a binary or a divide between what happens for them at home where they don't speak English, they live in a quite a traditional home background, and then what they do, um, you know, out there in the world. And I think they like coming to the Skip Garden and Global Generation mm -hmm. because we're a bit of a bridge between those two worlds. But I yeah. don't think Have that they talk to their parents, children especially the teenagers. Gone through this, how do you think this is? Well, we do know we're really lucky because we're not a school. We stay in touch with some of our young people or they get involved with us and then we don't see them for two years or three years or four years and then they come back and they volunteer oh. with us and some of them work for us. Uh, so we actually, I'm in touch with one young man who's 28 and I knew him since he was 11 when he came as a refugee from Kosovo. And But I'm thinking of a few young people who we now have a possibility also that they can apply to us for funding to take on their own projects. So we have, I mean, Zach is probably a really good example. I knew him when he was 14 and he got involved with Global Generation because we worked with businesses. <laughs> he, he wanted to do advertising and business. He didn't want to get involved with an eco-charity, forget it, let alone go on camp. But then he just really loved it. He's now 25. He probably couldn't tell you what any of the plants in the garden are. <laughs> but he says, I learned about myself. And he says that, he always says to me, oh, Jane, the way you work is very Islamic. And over oh, that really? time, he really connected with his faith more strongly. And so he's now involved in a project which is not that easy because he's having to deal with a lot of bureaucracy. Uh, and so he's create, wanting huh. to create a garden in the main London mosque, which is a very old kind of, you know, institution. So he started the project in the Skip Garden. And I know last year during Ramadan, 
he you know he brought different people from the Muslim community and involved them in you know seeding plants and growing them and having their hands in the soil and then sharing that process with elements of because he feels that the Quran speaks a lot to the environment but it's not practiced by the Muslim community and he wants to bring in some of the ways he's worked in global generation and connecting you know kind of spirituality to activism and um, dialogue and values mm -hmm. that he wants to bring that to his Muslim community and mm connecting environment to a spiritual journey. So he's involved in this ongoing kind of project. He had a big following, lots of people came, and hopefully this year he actually is going to be able to do something in the mosque. But what was interesting to me is that uh, at the moment I think we've got four people doing these, we call them alumni projects, and they all had to come up with their own interpretation of this I, we, and the planet and all of their projects relate to somehow using nature mm -hmm. as a ground for creating diverse communities. One of them is a project very much about race. He's a young black guy. Another of them is a project around older people and younger people. So this is a very live question mm -hmm. for them. Can we now grow a sense of community which is not about us all being the same. Well, I think, you know, linking it back to what we were saying before, that that, that uh, the indigenous people, they had this intuitive right. sense of being connected to the land. You know, they felt connected to the land. That, you know, that was their experience. And now we're feeling, I think the great thing about the universe story is that we're feeling connected to the whole cosmos and everything that we know about the cosmos, the universe and, and everything around us. And, you know, with our logical, you know, our logical scientific minds come on board with all of that as well. It's, it's um, in a sense, this is the modern indigeneity. You know, this is the way that a modern person can feel that this same. It's pretty obvious, but you think early peoples, indigenous peoples, their experience was purely subjective. Everything was kind of totally subjective then mm -hmm. we had to develop our objective muscle and then everything including the right. scientific reality it became all about objectivity and then we had the kind of subjective but it was separate you know subjective objective so i think we're involved in this time of integration that's yeah i love that between idea. the subjective and the idea. objective and to infuse the objective reality mm -hmm. with a subjective sensibility. <laughs> well, you do have it recorded <laughs> here. I need any. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. There's going to be it's just so wonderful much meeting you guys to, and talking um, with you and uh, you know learning more about what you're doing. And I truly, truly admire it. And uh, so, thank you so much for for talking with me. Thank you. Great to Thank talk to you. you. No, wonderful. Thanks. Thanks to Rod and Jane. You can find out more about Global Generations' work in the show notes. Go to www.meetyourmyth.com and click on the Big Chew podcast, episode 12. You can also leave comments there. And you can subscribe to the Big Chew podcast, which would be excellent. 
The Big Chew Podcast comes out twice a month on the full moon and the new moon because they were here first. Bye for now.